Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Uh, Norman, I think you just had a very warm welcome to Wales, albeit a wet one. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the first time you've been to Wales as well. I'm not used to it, you know. No. <laughs> so I gathered. Uh, what we're going to do tonight, ladies and gentlemen, um, is to say that this event, which is sponsored by Hay on Y Booksellers and is being uh, cast worldwide on the web, uh, is going to take us, and I, I don't know, an hour and a quarter or something like that. But... Um, uh, I'm the lucky one who's going to be able to ask Norman questions first for about 30, 40 minutes. We'll see how we go. And then we'll open it up to, to the rest of the audience uh, as, as we move along. So that's the beginning of it. Um, Norman, let me start by saying that uh, in the time of our time, your, your new compilation, it's, it's more than an anthology, isn't it? It's, it's a, a kind of a reflection on your writings by yourself as well as uh, pulling them together. <laughs> something you call uh, looking at the, the cultural and social history of the last 50 years. And by the way, since we're in Wales tonight, there'll be no hello questions about uh, what colour scheme you've got in your living room. Mm-hmm. This is just going to be about your incredible work. Well, fine. <laughs> no, no, really, no. I, uh, I mean, it's, it's perfectly okay with me. <laughs> and it's really okay with me. So, at the beginning of that, you... Y- y- Hemingway comes in, as you'd expect. There's a fragment about Hemingway in boxing. But at the end, um, it's Dos Passos you refer to, a writer with whom you're not normally associated. But what I thought was, uh, you'd, you'd write about Dos Passos in advertisements for myself, but what I was wondering was, is this some kind of way in which uh, the individual vision of Hemingway and the collective documentation of Dos Passos, is that what you've been doing over the last 50 years, pulling that together? Well, not, not consciously, you, you know... Um Writers are really uh, simpler than, than critics, as, as you know. Uh, and uh, it, it, I don't know how to put it. We're, we're very simple people at one side of ourselves, which is what, if something works well for us, we'll do it. If we read someone and we know that that writer is going to uh, mean an awful lot to us, in other words, it's going to make us a better writer, then we love that writer. I mean, we're, we're primitive that way. And um, so at a certain point in my life, I loved Hemingway, another point, I really revered Dos Passos, because it seemed to me he was trying to do the thing that uh, all American writers 50 years ago wanted to do, which was to write the great American novel. You never hear that anymore, because it's impossible. Uh, You know, not only America, but the entire world has, each nation in the world is now separated into enclaves. Uh, The job of the novelist has become uh, so overwhelming that, generally speaking, there's a tendency now in the novel to write more and more about less and less. Uh-huh. You see, to, to, to refine uh, the nuances of an enclave somewhere. And, and the best books right now, are, generally speaking, are those. And they're the ones the critics like, at least in America. But I come, I've been around for so long that I come from a totally different tradition, which was you try to do the whole thing. And so this Passos was immense for that. You know, he really, he's, no other American writer, to my knowledge, ever tried to encompass America the way he did. And no one since has come close. You know, a few of us have tried, but but Passos did that. Yeah, but 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 you kind of strained him, sieved him through what you got from Hemingway as well when you came to do it. Well, 
from Hemingway, I, I got a, a, a notion that went deep into me. I, I mean, it, uh, I won't evade the imagery. It went deep into me. And uh, there's no laugh here. That's enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you haven't penetrated them yet. I was penetrated. <laughs> I was penetrated by Hemingway's ethos. And uh, it... Looking back on it now, it was the most expensive influence I've ever had because when the Women's Revolution came along, back in about, uh, what was it, about 1975 and earlier, uh, early, uh, 1970, uh, I think that the smartest women in the revolution said, the first thing we have to do is obliterate Ernest Hemingway. (laughs) And then we'll take care of all his little acolytes like (laughs) Mailer. And so uh, my loyalty to Hemingway got me into ridiculous situations, you know, because I ended up buying his notion of women, although I should have known better, having already been married a couple of times. <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't know better. I, I really believe that... I really believe in this firm notion of his that men should be strong and brave and good and loyal and should tell the truth, and that the reward would be that they would have lovely women. Has it worked out? Well, does it work out? It works out in part. It works out in such a way that you could write a wonderful novel about the ways in which it works and doesn't work. But uh, in fact, uh, as a practical matter, no, it doesn't work out at all, politically speaking. But but are you being a little unfair on yourself? Because you also were the first, I'd say, to talk about the anguish that Hemingway had. I mean, even during his lifetime. I mean, that this guy was not quite the the big macho bull character that uh, maybe he was presenting himself as. No, he wasn't. He couldn't be. Nobody could be. You, you know, one thing I think that women really don't understand about the whole macho ethos is essentially anyone who's macho is saying, I'm a gambler, and I'm going into this casino, uh, which in this case, the casino is open life, life out on the street, life out in the amatory wars, life out there doing the best you can do under every circumstance. And it means that I'm going to gamble all my funds and either walk out a billionaire or absolutely flat. And uh, anyone who's truly macho has to lose sooner or later, just as you have to lose if you kept betting in a gambling casino night after night after night. So as a practical matter, guys who are macho generally are excellent actors. Uh-huh. You see, and nobody can be as tough as they pretend to be. And in fact, I remember that... Um, even a, you know, a, a tremendously macho and terrifying character like Sonny Liston used to be afraid to walk into the ring because no matter how tough he was, he couldn't stop, he couldn't stop a bullet. The bullet would stop him. And so he had fear going into the ring, you see. And macho people live in this fear, this deep fear that Hemingway had. You, you brought boxing up a bit earlier in the conversation that I was going to, but since we, we've, we've gone there, I mean, when did you become aware of boxers as such. Was that, was, that, was that late for you? or Relatively late, relatively late. In college, uh, I didn't do any boxing. And um, parenthetically, my oldest son, Michael, uh, ended up president of the boxing club at Harvard. Uh, speak of family tradition. That, uh, he understood, uh, Michael's very smart, he's now a Hollywood producer. And one thing he understood very, very well indeed was that if you've got a father who's allegedly famous, the thing to do is to beat your father on his weak link well, my weak link was boxing. I was a mediocre boxer at best at, at an amateur level. And Michael became quite a good boxer and became president of the boxing club at Harvard. Mm-hmm. So um, 
That parenthesis is just to advertise my son and yeah. work. <laughs> but you were making the point you were making. Well, following fighters, because um, we were having a conversation earlier on, which I, I'd like to share, that uh, in Long Branch, New Jersey, when you were growing up, uh, a Welsh fighter came, didn't he? Yeah, Tommy Farr. Tom. And all, all the Jewish people in Long Branch loved him. Why? And all the Italians. Why? And all the Irish. Well, because he, um, he was available, and he was easy. And he wasn't terrified of Joe Lewis, which impressed us immensely. Yeah. Uh, Max Baer was the man he was fighting then. Yeah. And um, Max Baer had this um, tremendous reputation. Uh, and everybody thought he was going to be a great champion. He'd just become champion, I think, a fight or two before. And Farr was not afraid of him. And then ended in, went in there and ended up going 15 rounds with uh, mm -hmm. Baer, losing the decision, which everyone knew he wouldn't advance. But... Uh, um, yeah, we all think he beat Joe Lewis as but well. But he was gutty. He was a gutty fighter. Yeah. Uh, but then when you came to write about boxers, Norman, and obviously I'm thinking of the early work uh, about, about Liston, but, but maybe particularly the essay on, on Benny Parrett. All right. What would you want me to say about well, that? Well, I just wondered, at the end of that essay, you, you say something like, uh, that this could no longer be a sport for you, or, or that it would always be more than a sport. And I'm thinking of what we see now about Muhammad Ali. No, and I, I don't think I said this could never be a sport for me. I, I think, if I remember what I wrote, I, what I said to the effect is what could never be, let's say, a simple sport for me anymore, that you had to recognize that uh, there were tragic elements in it, and, and there were da very dangerous elements in it. And if you uh, loved it, and I think I then wrote the following, that, that if you loved it, you had to recognize that you loved it in the same way that people who love meat can still eat it after they've seen a hundred or a thousand cows strung up on a line going to the slaughter. Mm -hmm. You know, in fact, uh, anyone who loves meat, and I do, should see something like that, because then you know where you are, you know who you are. You, yeah. know, you know you're a bloodthirsty son of a bitch who will eat meat. <laughs> but, but all right, but at least you know that. It isn't the idea that uh, you know, the, the meat comes in a little cellophane and therefore it's okay. So, so is, is it okay in the end, I, I, I suppose I'm saying, what boxing, happens? Boxing, yeah. yeah. I would argue that boxing's okay, finally. Even because what would, they, what would they, some of these kids be doing if they weren't boxing? You, you know, they'd be uh, mugging people on the street. They'd be in prison. They'd, uh, they'd be having worse lives. Mm -hmm. it, uh, their basic attitude from the beginning is that I'm going to take a lot of punishment in my life, and I want to have some rewards for that punishment. And Ali would have known that up front and would... Well, Ali, 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 I think, was sui generis. Ali was a genius. Uh, he was beyond, he was out of measure. Uh, he, you know, apart from the conventional stuff that he did everything, he broke all the rules in boxing. You know, he boxed with his head back, and he uh, uh, fought with his hands low, and he'd invite people to come to him on the ropes, and he did everything that other people saw. He, he, understood, the, um, <clears throat> he understood the fundamental principle of history, which is that, every, that history moves by the overcoming of a tradition. You see, discovering the weakness in a given tradition and transcending it. And Ali did that. He was an absolute genius. Okay, and it, it's, it's a cheap... He couldn't read or write, by the way, which is something to be said against the literacy program all over the Western <laughs> world now. I was going to say it's a cheap move in the, in the ringside for me, but, but to say on, on that kind of basis as well, I mean, you've taken some hard knocks in your, in your life, and in writing life, I mean, your career, I mean... Some, some tough times in the 50s and, and later, uh, writing, as uh, somebody said, against, against the grain of your contemporaries. Well, you know, I'm, I'm, I can hardly afford to complain because, um, 
know, I had one great gift that was like all great gifts. It, um, you know, great gifts are like fairy tales, to which the great gift has a curse in it always. And the curse has a deliverance in it and so forth. It, but the great gift I was given was that my first book when I was a young man was immensely successful, as successful certainly commercially as any book I ever wrote. And so I had an independent income at an early age. And I didn't have to go through those years that, that kill off a great many young, talented writers where they just have to, they have to take care of the wife and the kids and they go to a job and they, they just get creamed by it. They end up writing one-third or one-quarter or one-tenth as much as they would otherwise have written. And, and they, their lives fill with the, that true bitterness, which is the frustration of your talent. Oh. And so uh, it was very, very... Uh, <clears throat> I mean, I was very fortunate that way. That was, that, was, that was the fairy tale part of the gift. The curse was that I now had no identity that I could comprehend. You see, because I was a relatively ordinary young man in the way of the world when the book was successful. You know, uh, I couldn't do all the things that you should do when you're successful. You, you know, I couldn't go out and get laid with the most beautiful girl in a bar because I didn't know how. Uh -huh. You know, and the fact that I was successful didn't immediately teach me how to do it. You know, it took 20 years to begin to approach the rudiments of that. Uh -huh. yeah. So, uh, in that sense, um, uh, the, the curse of it was that I had to just, before anyone talked about identity problems, I had one. And I had to find out uh, almost what my new identity was. Because I used to feel, I've said this often, but I used to feel as if there was a famous um, writer out there named Norman Mailer. And um, I was his secretary. And to meet him, people had to meet me first. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there was that, this sort of sense of, of, of having two identities. Now, if you're a pretty good writer, what you end up doing is you take whatever uh, destiny has given you and you find a way to work with it. But at the time, I used to cry in my beard because the world of detail, of, of intimate detail, and the lives of people who looked upon you as being equal to them and, and not somewhere else it was over. And the Naked and the Dead had been successful because I'd been a soldier. And I'd been a soldier who didn't know if I was going to come home or not. Yeah. You, you know, didn't know whether I get through the war or not. And I wasn't even that good a soldier. And so I had a lot of respect for the good soldiers in our outfit. And uh, a fierce feeling of don't be, become the worst soldier in the platoon, you know, that sort of thing. So everything was very simple, and the experience was immediate. It worked. It, went, it was perfect for me. But the, um, now, suddenly, no experience was mine, and all experience was mine, and I couldn't label it and define it. So that sent me off on a totally different career than if the Naked of the Dead had been, let's say, a semi-failure, uh, commercially. Uh, and um, I, I think it, it turned out to be half, half very good because it pushed me in directions I wouldn't have gone in normally. Yeah. But, but then you do something, I think, maybe not with hindsight, Eden, something incredibly brave because, I mean, you, you, you turned with Barbary Shaw and I guess with Deer Park on, later on as well, but particularly with Barbary Shaw. Um, you, you write a novel that, that is in the maw of politics at that time, I mean, and you yourself I mean, are taking political stances at the end of, at the, end of the 40s and pretty left-wing political stances. Mm. You didn't have to do that. No, but, you know... Well, I was so innocent that I was fearless. So, uh, I mean, the book, looking back on it, is a very brave book, but uh, at the time I didn't realize uh, 
the kind of price that would be paid. Because it was the worst single period I remember in American life in terms of, of real freedom. Uh, I mean, we've done a great many bad things as a country since then and some good things, but that was the worst period because it was the closest we ever came to a kind of, uh, uh, what can I say, a kind of psychic dictatorship that lay over the entire country. Uh, the fear of the Russians was enormous. And it was ridiculous because the Russians at, at that point, you know, they had 20 million dead, their cities were destroyed, their railroads, were, roads were gone. They were incapable of, and they didn't even have the atom bomb at that point, and yet we were terrified of them. Mm. And I always felt that there was a huge guilt behind it, an immense guilt that, that, you know, America sees itself as a Christian nation. This was the first manifestation of the fact that as a Christian nation, suddenly where we should be poor and taking care of each other, instead we were w wealthy and powerful and we were advancing into more and more. And so this, this, this great guilt was loose. Americans are always a guilty people because uh, we've done so much to extirpating our own roots. You know, there's the natural guilt in Americans of what happens when you cut yourself away from your roots. Mm -hmm. No one is ever free of guilt when they do that. And whereas the American, very few Americans haven't cut themselves away from their roots two or three generations back anyway to come to America. So this immense guilt translated into a terror of the Soviet and the idea that anyone who was remotely left was terribly dangerous. And well, I was still angry from the war, you know, and, and uh, I had a great friend named Jean Malachet who was a Marxist theorist. And so my feeling was I want to write this book that says that both America, and he also hated the Soviet Union. He hated America, he hated the Soviet Union. He was a prodigious influence on me. Yeah. So I, wrote, I wrote, wanted to write this book that would say, um, uh, look, uh, Soviet Union is state capitalism, and America is going towards state capitalism. And they're both awful. By the way, the Pope, the wonderful Pope we have now, said the same thing about eight, ten years ago. <laughs> Tell me more about Jean Malachy, because he, he crops up, um, and it, it seemed, I don't know, like a bridge back into Europe as well, because you, you also spent some time in Paris at that time, didn't you? No, he, well, I met him in Paris, and uh, he translated The Naked and the Dead, yeah. and that's how we became friends, because this man, he was getting a pittance for the translation, and... Uh, Why was he so important to you? Well, he's, he was, at the time, I knew him when much, then, you know, he didn't, he died a couple of years ago in his 90s, but in those days, he was the most intelligent man I'd ever met immensely powerful, cultivated mind, and um, a, a sort of fury of intellection. I once heard him give a lecture. It's the best lecture I ever heard. It was Electron Proust. And at the climax of it, um, someone it was at the new school in New York. One of the students stood up and said, uh, uh, you don't give us any answers. You just give us questions. And, and he, he was a fiery. He looked like Picasso. And he had a huge forehead and a bulb of a nose and was sort of semi-bald, uh, striking resemblance to Picasso. And he stood up, he was very fiery, and he said, there are no answers, there are only questions. <laughs> and, which is a profound remark, because, you know, our, our, human, uh, our human necessity may be, I've always felt, to rise to higher and higher questions. You, you know, that the pursuit of answers is, is uh, not only uh, bound to be unsuccessful, but it's oppressive. You, you know, what's the worst thing you can say about most politicians is they're always supplying you with answers that you know they don't quite believe in, and we don't quite believe in, but at least they're offering answers, you, you know. Let me throw another question at you then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you also said that, uh, in fact, you've said this several times in several ways, that um, you value 
not just the fiction that you do, I was going to say more than the journalism, but, but I suppose the better way of putting it is, is you said that fiction informs all of your writing, or the way you approach fiction has informed all of your writing. It's the way I approach non-fiction, as if yeah. it were fiction. Yeah. Yeah. Explain that to me. Well, I've now come to a nice glorified theory that all history is fiction. And uh, this is my reasoning on it. If you take an event, if you're writing, let's say, a history of, of the French Revolution, a good history, and um, in a particular chapter of it, let's say a chapter that would cover the origins of the terror, uh, a good historian, let's, let's say for the sake of argument, that there are probably a hundred essential facts that have to be traced out. And a good historian will come up with 12 of them, given the limits of human research. And a good novelist will come up with four. So the novelist builds his chapter on f only four facts out of 100. The historian builds it on 12 out of 100. And they're both writing fiction. Because right. they're each giving you a portrait of how people lived at that point and what they were up to and what they thought. So why is the novelist better at it? Well, the thing is, fiction is usually, uh, uh, not all fiction, by the way. Bad fiction is, is a disease. Uh, <laughs> No, but I meant you. What? Why are you better at it? I mean, if you take, if you take Armies of the Night, well, you, you, know, you call it the novelist's history, the history is the novel. Yeah. I mean, you enter as, as a protagonist. By that time, I mean, I don't know how or why, but you just broke the form. Well, I was trying to break the form, and I didn't even know why. Years later, I'm now saying all history is fiction. The point is that there's such a thing as very good history, excellent history, which is a fairly high form of fiction. And there is occasionally fiction that is excellent as history because even though it has fewer, fewer real facts in it and less research than, than the consummate historian, nonetheless, there may be more feeling for the moment of the period and, and, and what were, what, the emotions that, that shaped it. But, you know, all history is approximation, and fiction is an approximation. And what you try to do in, in fiction is, is create some kind of, oh, how to put it, some sort of crystal of experience which different readers can come through and shine their imaginative light through it in different directions and come up with different verities for themselves. And so fiction, also, but also the, other, the wonderful thing about fiction for me is that it, it's separate from all the other disciplines. You see, by now, people only trust disciplines, given our technological age. They will trust a sociologist or a psychotherapist or an anthropologist long before they'll ever trust a good novelist. And yet, the novelist is the only one who deals with the questions that no one else deals with. Uh, I wrote something for, for the beginning of the time of our time where I said, the novelist is the only one who says to himself, what the hell is love? Do I love my wife? Do I really love my wife? Does my wife really love me? Do we love our children? Then comes the real question. Do we love our children so much that we're willing to die for the children? Or will we let the children die for us? These are the kind of questions that novelists get into. And they're, they're intense and they're immense. And, uh, uh, no one else even tries to go near that. They can't. They'd be destroyed by their fellow academicians. So the execution of song is, is truth because it's fiction? Beg pardon? The execution of song. Uh, is, that, is that truth because it's fiction? I mean, should I call it a fiction? It isn't truth. There's no such thing as truth. There are... Um, Malachi once had a wonderful remark. He, he, uh, he was a very good writer, but he was prodigiously constipated because he had uh, 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 he read more books than any good novelist should ever read and, they, and great books and they stood over him uh, they were in his way and so he'd sit at his desk because he was an immensely stubborn man 
He'd sit at his desk and work for 14 hours a day, literally. At the end of those 14 hours, 12 or 14 hours, he'd have three or 400 words. And um, I remember once saying to him, uh, this is many years ago, uh, why do you do it? You're good, but you're not that good. I mean, we talk to each other that way. No, no, it, it, of all my friendships, there was never one that was as brutal, back and forth and as honest. Hmm. You, you know, at times he'd say uh, things like, uh, you are a nice boy and your heart is in the wrong place, but you don't know a damn thing, you see. And uh, <clears throat> so we'd go back and forth. And it wasn't even, believe it or not, it wasn't even with hostility. It was that we each had a fierce um, sense of approval of the other, provided they delivered. And so I said to him, why do you uh, insist on writing? There's so many other things you could do. And your work is not that good. He said, I know it's not that good. It drives me insane. It's not that good. And uh, I said, so why do you do it? Why don't you do something else? And uh, he said, oh, I can never give up writing. Never. I said, why? He said, because the only time I know the truth is at the the point of my pen when I'm writing it. And I thought he's absolutely right. That is, there's a peculiar thing that happens when you're writing, which is occasionally when you're writing well, you'll write something and you didn't know you knew it. And you're saying something and it's true. That's the closest you ever get as a writer to truth. When you were when you were writing armies but of the night, excuse me, but it's yeah. not it's not the truth. No, no. Okay. When you were writing armies of the night, which you write from different perspectives, but you were writing against deadlines, weren't you? I and mean, you were writing almost in a, in, a, in a fury. Did did you realize when you finished that book the impact that particular book was going to make? I probably had hopes. Uh, I was so close to it. It was such a peculiar book because um, uh, the armies of the night was was a book I wrote about the march on the Pentagon back in. 1967, with the, with the war in uh, uh, Vietnam, we, and those of us who were opposed to the war, marched 50,000 strong. March, we went by train or plane or whatever to Washington, and then marched on the Pentagon. And um, I had agreed to do a piece for Harper's Magazine about it when I came back, and it was thought the piece would be oh, 10,000 words or 15 or maybe 20, no more than that. And I started trying to write it, and I spent a week in misery because I couldn't get a style that I liked. Uh, and I was trying to write it, uh, oh, didactically, and uh, uh, I was just on top of the whole thing all the time and worrying. And then suddenly one day I just, uh, Time magazine had me um, dirtying up the men's room, you see, at the theater where I'd given a speech. Uh, why did they come up with that detail? Because I had announced when I was giving the speech, I was dead drunk at the time when I gave the speech to all the people who were going to be marching in, in a day or two that I had um, tried to find the urinal, couldn't find the light. I found the urinal, but I couldn't find the light. So I urinated on the floor. And I said, tomorrow they're going to say all of you did it. And you didn't. I did it. You, you see. So time ran with that. But of course, in those days, it was a dreadful, dreadful magazine. Hideous. You, mm. you, you know, if you want to hate capitalism, read Time magazine in those days. And uh, so they distorted it entirely. And they said, mailer after uh, filthing, in effect, after filthing up a uh, men's room, then came down to deliver a totally drunken speech. Only the second half of that was actually correct. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I I had a brainstorm. The light bulb went on. One of the few times in my life as a writer, the light bulb went on. And so the book began, we may as well start with mailers, uh, we may as well start with Time Magazine's version of the event. And I printed their entire piece on me. And then I said, let us leave the pages of Time magazine in order to find out what happened. 
So I had a wonderful beginning to the book. Mm. And it occurred to me, there's Mailer. So for the next few pages, I wrote about it as Mailer. Norman Mailer felt this way, Norman Mailer did that. And I suddenly discovered that I was a very good uh, 19th century character. I say a 19th century character because I knew from the beginning there'd be no sex in the book. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, a good character in the sense that he was half serious, half comic, uh, had a view of himself that was on one hand too modest and the other hand too large. You see, and kept, kept putting square pegs into round holes and having dowels rattle around and cut out squares and so forth and so on. And it worked. Hmm. And suddenly I was writing about myself in the third person and it was the most extraordinary experience because it was no longer a literary form as such. It, wasn't, it, it obviously wasn't a novel, but it read like a novel in which there's a character named Norman Mailer. It wasn't at all a... Uh, 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 it wasn't fact as such, but it was fact. It was in between. It was something that, that never had quite been there before, at least for me. Yeah. And so I, I wrote with enormous, uh, for me, enormous energy and incredible recall. My memory is no better than anyone else's, but on that one, I absolutely remembered everything that had happened. Because people came up to me after and said, it was incredible, you remembered everything I said. Because I hadn't taken any notes while I was there. I'd had four days of pure existential experience. And by existential experience, what I mean is I had four days, three days, in which um, I simply didn't know what was going to happen next. You know, an existential experience is one where you really don't know um, how it's going to turn out. Get into a bad skid, that's an existential experience. Anytime you're not in control, essentially, of what's going on, you're in an existential experience. And those are the ones that etch themselves on your brain. And so I had that. I had four days of existential experience and came back to, to write about it. Yeah, which you delivered into, into print, really. Because uh, Tell me about your own political... I mean, you use the words left conservative, but you've also called yourself um, somebody influenced by Marxism and nihilism, existentialism. You've just, you've just mentioned... Are you still a left conservative? Yes, yes. So what is a left conservative? It has nothing to do with the English terminology. No, no, yeah. Because um, I think most conservatives... Uh, this is true of American conservatives, too. Are, uh, are no longer conservatives at all. They're radical reactionaries. <laughs> and, and the liberals are no longer uh, left at all. They're technologists. I mean, the war in Kosovo proved that forever, as far as I'm concerned. They're much more interested in, in technology and bombing at 15,000 feet than they are in improving the lot of humankind. Okay. And, and uh, so, but what it seemed to me is that there are profound truths in, in let's say, Edmund Burke's conservatism which is, uh, I remember, let me name drop one time, I met, had the pleasure of meeting Che Guevara one time at a party in New York. He was in for a day or two, and um, someone gave a party for him. There were just a f not too many of us there. And I had a favorite question in those days, which was, if you were a leader, uh, and he was, I, so I, I said, if, if you, as a leader, come across a situation where it's a question of cutting down five trees or shooting five people, which would you do? And I had an answer in my own mind. And the answer that I thought would be, the, uh, the, for me, the politically correct answer would have been, I would look at them. You know, not, oh, every human life must be saved at all costs, mm -hmm. or never cut down a tree, but I would look at them. But instead of what Guevara did, he gave a sly grin, and he said, uh, oh, senor, he said, we do not really have trees in Cuba. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. 
But anyway, that to me is left conservatism. Do you, do you mm. cut down the trees or do you shoot the people? But, but you, you've also been pretty consistent all, all along, and, and it's your phraseology uh, against totalitarianism, by which you mean the ta- ta- totalitarianism of architecture, of plastic, um, yeah, yeah. all of the of technology. Yeah. high-rise buildings. No condoms. Windows you can't open in a motel room. Yeah. That's totalitarianism. You know they've ripped all the condoms out of the pubs in Hay and Wye. When, when they, they've taken all the condoms away from Hay and Wye when they heard you were coming. They took all the condoms away? That's how Jeff I am. Is yeah, that what because, you said? <laughs> that's what I'm saying, yeah. <laughs> well, aren't you against their use? Oh, oh, well, condoms are a very subtle form of totalitarianism. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I think I'm beginning to get lost for words. <laughs> well, let, let me just ask you a couple more things, and then, and then we'll open it up. I mean, I suppose... Well, let me ask a, a straightforward question first. I mean, you used to judge yourself against your contemporaries, whether it was James Jones... Always, always. Styron, yeah? All Who, of them. Who's any good now? Oh, there are too many who are good. Many too many. Um, Delilo's good. Roth is very good. Updike's very good. Bellow's very good. Uh, and, and then there are a whole bunch of others. Joyce Carol Oates is, right. uh, you know, like a dark horse in the Kentucky Derby. Uh, uh, you know, you, if you get 30 to 1 on her, bet Oates. Yeah. But, I, but don't bet on her if you only get 2 to 1. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, I, what I would say there is something I said about a week ago for an interview, but it's worth repeating, I think, which is I, I've come to realize that novelists particularly, uh, I can't speak for poets or short story writers, but for novelists, novelists are as competitive, good novelists are as competitive as good athletes. So in other words, we never read each other just for pure pleasure. That's the rarest thing in the world. Maybe if your child wrote a wonderful novel, then you might read it for pure pleasure. But short of that, when we read it, um, I'm always reading very, uh, very critically on the one hand and very competitively. I'm saying, oh, this is real good what he's doing here or she's doing here. Uh, can I do it better? The same way an athlete will look at someone um, making a beautiful move on the field and saying in, in, their, in their dark heart, they're saying, can this guy be better than me? That's awful. And, and so this sort of profound com- competitiveness, I think, exists in novels. We never talk about it. You know, it's, it's considered uh, you're doing it for art and you're doing it for uh, the uh, love of the novel and blah, blah, and so forth. But in fact, we are immensely competitive people for a good cause because we're individual entrepreneurs the last of the Adam Smith breed. <laughs> I attended the session uh, that your wife did this afternoon, and she was asked a question about poetry, whether she wrote poetry, and she said she didn't anymore because she'd shown you a poem she'd written some years ago, and you sent it back with red pencil through it. <laughs> and it was I suppose, a dreadful poem, I have to tell well, you. <laughs> so, so she said before she became a good novelist, but I suppose the question to you is, which of your own writings would you put a red pencil through and send back? I do it all the time. I do it all the time. Um, you know, as you get older, you're, the real smoke and fire that you have in your language tends to be banked a little. It isn't there. It's there occasionally. But very often what you have to do is take a piece of writing and improve it. And you improve it through editing. Uh, so as the years have gone by, I've become a better and better editor of my own work uh, because there's much more to be done with the work now. It doesn't suddenly just flame into a good being. And um, so I'm very, very critical of myself. In fact, when my wife wrote her novel, um, there were two phases to it. At the very beginning, when she was about 50 pages into it, about two years ago, because this is a book she'd been on for 30 years, but half-heartedly, and it's only in the last two years she really wrote it. Uh, she said, look, I've got a serious problem. I, I want to talk to you about it. 
And I said, no, I'm not going to look at it. I said, because if I read it and we talk about it and you don't finish this novel, you will never forgive me. Mm-hmm. And, you, you know, it took six marriages and uh, the age of 76 then to, re- to require a little wisdom about the nature of women. <laughs> <laughs> but in any event, um, that was the beginning of it. By the end of it, she was a tiger. And she wouldn't let me near it. At a certain point, when she finally was in her last revisions, uh, she said, all right, now you can read it. So I started to read it, and I made my pencil marks, as I always do, as I do on my own stuff all the time. And she saw it, and she had a, she had a rage. There's only a redhead can have a rage. And said, uh, you can't do that. I said, if I can't do it, I can't read it. She said, in that case, don't read it. Have you read it? Yes. Well, we agreed that once it was in book form, and right. I couldn't do anything to it. Yep. Um, <laughs> and so I read it in book form. And how is it? It's very good, but it would have been even better if... <laughs> <laughs> Do you have a favorite, Norman, amongst your own books? My pardon? Do you have a favorite amongst your own? Of my own books? I have favorites. I have about three or four or five I could name that I think are my better books. I remember once when I did... Uh, my book on Picasso came out and got very bad reviews. I'd say the worst reviews I've had on any book since Barbary Shore. And... Um, I was on a TV show with a man named Charlie Rose in, in America. And he said, what do you think of this book? I said, it's one of my 10 best books. I was surprised, but I said it. Uh, so I, obviously, if I said it, it has some, hmm. uh, there's something to say for it, which is it probably, probably I think I have 10 books that are better than the others. But you know, I have nine children, and I would never dream of saying, this is my favorite child, because I'll change my mind the next day. <laughs> well, you know, your kids do something good or something awful, and, and you keep Moving yep. them all around. Yeah, and... yep, that's right. Yeah. Look, we, we, we began by talking about the time of our time and the way in which it um, brings together your work. Let, last question from me. Uh, and again, it's, it's, it's something from you, I think, in advertisements for myself, where you talk about um, setting out to create a revolution in the consciousness of our time. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you do it? No, I failed uh, abysmally, utterly. Uh, everything that I was for has failed. Everything I hated, detested, and scorned has succeeded. Uh, I used to feel sorry for guys who worked for the corporation. You know, back in 59, the poor fellow, he had to go to work 9 to 5 every day in a very dull place with very dull capitalists at the top. And now the corporations are immensely powerful all over the world. They succeeded in brainwashing Americans to a degree that the Soviet Union never succeeded in brainwashing its young, not for lack of trying, but they just were clumsy and stupid at it whereas the Americans are immensely uh, sophisticated at brainwashing. Think of it when you sell someone a product, and then not only do you buy their shirt, but you put their name on the shirt. <laughs> I mean, that's brainwashing. Yeah. Well, I, I think you succeeded. Um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we, I think Norman deserves a round of applause before we take this further. You know, Di, hearing aids are wonderful when you hear applause. <laughs> okay, I'm going to put my hand like this because the lights are in your eyes as well. A microphone will come amongst you, uh, not that one. Uh, um, so if anybody would like to ask a question, there's a gentleman in the middle. And the microphone is coming to you, sir. Mr. Mailer, I think it was Lawrence Durham. 
Hang on. <laughs> I think it was Lawrence Durrell who said, American literature begins and ends with Henry Miller. What do you feel now about Henry Miller? And what did Henry Miller feel about you? Uh, well, three parts to the question. Uh, I wouldn't agree that American literature begins and ends with Henry Miller. He's one of our greatest writers. Uh, I think he, he didn't have the influence that Hemingway had, but I think he was as great a writer as Hemingway. I think Tropic of Cancer is one of the uh, ten best novels of the 20th century in English. Uh, all that. But the whole point to American literature is that we are so various. And we're various for a reason, which is that we have this huge country, most of which has been undefined and ill-described for a long, long time. And one of the efforts in Amer among Americans is to understand themselves. And so we have novelists all over the place. And some who are marvelous about one little, as I say, one little enclave, one little purlieu, uh, and they're terrific. And then you have uh, novelists who uh, uh, do other things. And to give it all to Henry Miller would be to lose uh, most of American literature. On the other hand, he, uh, at his best, he, he, he was a genius. He was, he was fabulous. There was a third part of the question. And... The third part of the question was about, uh, and what did he make of you, I think, wasn't it? Oh, what did he make of me? Oh, that's an interesting story, yeah. Glad you brought it up. <laughs> <laughs> I was writing a book on him called Genius and Lust. And what it was, it was 500 pages of Miller. It was essentially an anthology of Miller with, I hope, some fairly intelligent and pointed uh, criticism and approbation on my part. You know, I really was, I would preface practically every one of his pieces with anything from two pages to 30 pages. And um, he read the introduction where I came up with a, an image of Miller and why he was so great. And it's a crude image, so I'd like a voice vote. Are you ready for a truly crude image? How many say aye? Aye. How many are opposed? <laughs> <laughs> Only in Wales. <laughs> I'll, I'll tell on. the story then. The image I used. Yeah. The, the, image I, the image I used. Can you hear all right? Yeah. The, the image I used was that if Henry James and Ernest Hemingway and Henry Miller all came into a room, a rather elegant room, with a, certainly with a superior hostess. And they took off their hats. And each of them had a load of shit on their head. What would happen? I, I said, James would have been totally unable to deal with it. It would have had nothing to do with any world he had ever created. And he simply couldn't begin to um, handle it. And it would probably go into extreme denial. And I said that uh, Hemingway would have been profoundly depressed because the world depended upon uh, certain fine customs and good manners and, and a certain grace under pressure. And how the hell are you going to have grace under pressure when there's shit on you? <laughs> but Henry Miller would have come into the room and said, how did that shit get there? <laughs> it's got a pretty good smell for shit. It's not the worst shit I ever smelled. And on top of that, he said, look at the way the hostess is wrinkling her nostrils over this. Maybe I could lay her, you see. <laughs> so that was the way I contrasted the three, and I got into why he was, for that reason, he was one of our greatest novelists and, and quite the equal of Hemingway in many, many ways. And Miller loved the story. This was the preface to my book. It was the first chapter. And he wrote me a letter and said uh, he really was delighted with it and 
how fine it was, and, and uh, it, it restored his respect for critical writing. It was just a lovely, lovely letter. Then he read the book. <laughs> and the book was very positive about him. It, it said Tropic of Cancer was a great novel and all that, what I said before. But along about the fourth or fifth chapter, I came to The Colossus of Marusi, which was his novel about Greece. And he loved Greece. And um, it was a very, rather a good book, rather good travel book. It was over the top. It was much too dithyrambic. I mean, no country could have been that beautiful, that gorgeous, that fabulous. And also, I suspected it, because there wasn't a swear word in it. And I had the feeling, what I, the way I wrote about it was that mm, friends had come to Miller and said, Henry, you've got to be, uh, be published publicly in America. You've got to write one book that everybody can read, that uh, a grandmother can read. And so Miller wrote this book for a grandmother, for grandmothers. And indeed, uh, it's true. Talk to any elderly lady, anyone who's over 85 who reads, and ask her about the Colossus of Marusi, and five to one, she'll say, I love that book. <laughs> well, Miller never forgave me for it, because I said, I said, I think, you know, that this is the one time in his life that Henry Miller went in the tank, which is fight talk for um, a fighter who throws a fight. And he simply didn't forgive me for it. Yeah. And then they put us on a television show together. And uh, uh, he spoke first. And he said, Norman, you know, he had a wonderful, easy way of talking. Uh, he, he was from Brooklyn, I was from Brooklyn. Was, he was very easy, had a gutty, sort of agreeable, easy voice. He said, you know, Norman, I like you personally, uh, but I have a lot of trouble um, reading your work because the sentences are so long. And um, I have a tough time understanding you. He, he said, what... Um, what would you uh, recommend that I read? I said, well, gee, Henry, maybe you ought to start with The Naked and the Dead, because the first sentence in it is, uh, nobody could sleep. <laughs> well, you know, Miller was a wonderful fighter, and he got that grin on his face that, hey, you hit me a good one, now I'm awake. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we had a fine time. And then afterward, we were, he sort of half forgave me for the Colossus of Marusi. <laughs> his kids were ready to kill him for that first remark, because... They, were, they wanted uh, my book on Henry Miller to bring Miller back and, and sell all sorts of copies of his books, since this was an anthology of all his work, and enrich them. So they were ready to kill Dad. You know? <laughs> okay. Um, anybody else? I'm looking. There's a lady in the front here. Mr. Mailer. Can you hear me, but Oh, yes, you can hear me. Mr. Mailer, do you like us, and I'm, by us I mean women, better now, or have you always liked us anyway? Oh, uh, she'd like to know um, if you've always liked women. Or you'll, oh, or, us as women. Yeah, right, yeah. Right. Or, or do okay. you like women? I thought maybe it was the Welsh. <laughs> All right. So. Or, or do you like women better now than you did? Um... I've always liked women, uh, and I, I don't say this uh, facetiously. Uh, I had a marvelous mother, and she had four sisters, and they had a great unity among them. They were very loyal to one another. So I grew up with this marvelous mother and these four warm, generous aunts, and I thought women were the finest thing that God had ever created, until women's liberation came along. And then I realized that women were no better than men as mean-spirited, as competitive, as ugly, as power-obsessed, as empty. So that's the answer to your question. Okay.
I'll, I'll be amazed if we move on that easily from that one. <laughs> uh, there's somebody on the left up there, I think. On, on the left here. Yep. I think it's a gentleman. Yep. Yes. Uh, Mr. Mailer, in Armies of the Night, you talk about the beast. Uh, is the beast dead or merely altered? You mean on the basis of my performance tonight, you think the beast is either dead or altered? <laughs> <laughs> I'm uh, wondering. Well, I think that the beast has been reduced because uh, I've been married to a very tough woman for 25 years. And, uh, uh, yeah, you know, uh, punishment takes its toll. She's tough. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd, I'd say it, it, I wouldn't say it's been altered and I wouldn't say it's dead. I'd say the beast is seriously reduced. And there's somebody in the middle here again? It's not the same, it's not the same questioner, is it? There's a guy in the middle. In the Gospel According to the Sun, you say that Mary and Joseph were Essenes. What was your motivation, historical or otherwise, for saying this? Uh, it was my impression. I, I, I confess to you that I'm uh, prodigiously embarrassed by uh, questions of that sort because I did not spend uh, what I usually do if I'm taking on a subject with which I'm not terribly familiar is I usually spend, um, oh, at least a year, very often two or even three years, as in the case of a novel I wrote about ancient Egypt, doing research and getting familiar with it. But I felt I had a different motive when I wrote uh, The Gospel According to the Sun, which was that I happened to be reading, uh, I was living in a tiny hotel room in Paris, and started reading, uh, out of curiosity, there was a Bible in the room, and I started reading the New Testament. And I had, as I'm, since I'm not a believer, uh, I had some very odd reactions. I thought, I remembered a, a very bad book by a man named Fulton Osler about Jesus called The Greatest Story Ever Told. And I thought that, that title is true. This is the greatest story ever told, and it's told abominably <laughs> in, in, in the New Testament. It, it's full of confusions. It's, it, it's, to a certain degree, it's a little bit like Rashomon because uh, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John all have... Uh, seriously different versions, John particularly, and I thought it'd be very interesting to try to tell this story as a novel in which Jesus would be the uh, main character. And immediately I knew I was going to have great difficulty with it in one way, which is that, because uh, I wasn't interested, I wasn't interested in mocking it, and I wasn't interested in uh, uh, turning it inside out, I wasn't interested in making Jesus a homosexual, or to have him have an affair with Mary Magdalene, or get married, or do this or do that which other books at the time were doing, I wanted to take the Gospels on, on, on their own terms. In other words, I wanted to take the New Testament on its record and try, to, um, uh, and try to see what kind of novel I could make out of it. And the one problem I had, of course, is it's very easy to write about people whose um, character is worse than your own. It's very hard to write about someone who is nobler than yourself, nicer than yourself, gentler than yourself, uh, more illumined than yourself. And so that was the, the tough part of it. As far as the facts went, you know, the so-called facts, um, after I'd written a first draft of the book and then had to work on the style for a long time, about a year, to get it to my taste, in other words, not to be too biblical and not to be too contemporary, but somewhere between, which took a lot of back and forth. Uh, but while we're, I read a few books, I, I started doing some research after the fact. 
and did enough to realize I didn't have to worry about the research in a funny way because nobody knew anything about anything. You, you could read some very, very good books of research on it that would say this and this and this and others would say this and this and this. Somewhere, obviously, I came across the Essenes and uh, there seemed some evidence, not that Mary and Joseph were Essenes, they weren't, I didn't have them as that in the book, but they were influenced by the Essenes. And I think if I recall the book, because the one thing novelists like me do is we forget our books as quickly as we write them for good cause because we want to have a fresh mind for the new one. But if I recall, they were interested in having him become an Essene. But, it is, it, but this is just maybe a novelistic liberty I was taking. Okay. I, I wouldn't argue that this is a biblical fact because finally there's very little biblical fact. There's a, there's a gentleman on the left here, about five, six rows up. Uh, Mr. Mayor, in your marvelous biography of Marilyn Monroe, <clears throat> which was quite a groundbreaker, I think, did you, did you write to the photographs? How important were the photographs in that book to you? Could you have written your biography of Marilyn without those photographs? And, and I think that was the first time you ever used the expression factoids which I remember to die and I and others was a very, very important revelation. We could write factoids when we wrote history, too. All right, so there were two questions. Uh, it was, did you write to the photographs um, well, in the Marilyn book? Did I write with the photographs? Did you write to the photographs? Uh, and <coughs> is that no, the first time I, you talked about factoids? And by the no, way, this was a government minister asking the question, so he knows yeah. all about factoids. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's start with the factoids first, because that's simpler. Um, Years ago, at the time I was writing Marilyn, I decided that the only way to understand her life was to realize that her life was composed of factoids. And by that, what I meant was people knew a set of facts about her that had no more existence than that they had once appeared in print and had been repeated ever since, which is true of 90% of what you read in a newspaper. 90% of what you read in newspapers is factoids because 90% of what you read in newspapers is a regurgitation of what was written yesterday and last month and last year. And so uh, the existence of most of these facts is that they're not facts. They just get repeated in newspapers until they take on all the, they take on the palimpsest of a fact. They have the weight of a fact. People believe in them as facts, but they're not facts. They're just the, they're mistruths that were printed in newspapers and get reprinted. For example, I'll give one quick example because I want to get it on the record. There was a very nice story about me uh, by, um, uh, in the Times by um, uh, Ginny Dugaray. She had one error, that, only one error, which is amazing in the story, a newspaper story, that bothered me, and that was that I used to spar with Muhammad Ali. It's not true. I used to spar with the former light heavyweight champion of the world, Jose Torres, and I take no credit for it. I'm not bragging, because the only time I ever got Jose Torres mad enough to leave the room was he was pretending to talk about how I was a good boxer, and I said, are you kidding? I'm safer with you in the ring than I am with my sister. <laughs> and he got so mad that he left the room. <coughs> Uh, but I never boxed with Muhammad Ali. Who could? Uh, I, I mean, I don't want that to become another factoid. Okay. That Mailer who boxed with Muhammad Ali every day. You, you know. uh, yeah. All right. The other part, the photographs uh, have a long didactic history. I hated the photographs because I wrote the book and then only saw the photographs afterward. And I thought, what the hell do these photographs have to do with what I've written? I wanted small, intimate, black and white photographs of Marilyn. I didn't want it to be a beautiful book of, of her photographs. What happened is that the man who got the book together, Larry Schiller, with whom I later did a lot of work and good work with him, but at that time, he just wanted to get the world's best photographers of the way he saw it. And then he wanted somebody like Roman Gary or Norman Mailer or who the hell cared who to do some gray matter in between so he could space the photographs agreeably. 
And we met as strangers. We were brought together. It was an arranged marriage. And we didn't understand one another at all in those years. And so we were fighting each other all the time. He finally put in a few black and white photographs, and I felt that the color photographs, the wonderful color photographs by the world's greatest photographers, were wrecking my text. Because whenever you came to a color photograph in this book, Marilyn, it had nothing to do with what I was writing about. And as you know, you all know the irritability that comes upon you when you see a picture and the text has nothing to do with the picture. Later, Schiller and I became friends, and he was the man who got me to do the Executioner song. And we're good friends now. Uh, but um, we weren't in those days, I promise you. Okay. We can probably take, I think, one more. If anybody's burning to ask a question. Somebody over here? Yes, gentleman here. Uh, Mr. Mailer, do you have a vision of socialism succeeding in the future with a religious aspect to it? Because of, bear in mind what's the events of uh, the last 50 years. Do you have a vision of socialism succeeding in the future but with religious aspects uh, attached to it? Um, I mean, I guess also the way you talked about your belief in God and the devil, Norman. And, uh... Well, I, I would go so far as to say that I don't think socialism can succeed unless it has a profound religious uh, convictions. But I would add to that that I don't see it as being conventional religions. Um, that it seems to me that part of the problem of the this coming century is will we finally end up with a much more profound notion of God and all the uh, and the Son of God and uh, than we've ever had before? Because it seems to me that that organized religion, uh, no matter its its beauties and its complex history and its achievements and everything good you want to say about it, but nonetheless. In terms of, of the world we're entering, organized religion is ultimately is oppressive because it keeps people from being able to think. It's a simple example of what I'm saying. If we all have lives that are in varying degree very complex to ourselves and hopefully interesting to ourselves, and when they're not interesting, they're agonizing. But we go through a great deal. We do, we do things we're proud of. We do things we're ashamed of. And always in religion, you have this terrible dichotomy between heaven and hell. And, and um, you know, which makes no sense on, on a day-to-day -day basis. It's very, very hard to comprehend how someone can be sent to hell forever when they've done good things and bad things in their life. And it's very hard to understand how one can go to heaven forever considering all the bad things one's done in one's life. So I think one thing I, I would hope is that we're going to get into a deep sense of, of karma and resurrection. Because I remember um, I used to sneer at karma and once I visited James Jones, not the uh, mass murderer, but the uh, novelist uh, who wrote From Here to Eternity. And I uh, had a lot of respect for him as a guy. And uh, at a certain point, I said, surely you don't believe in karma, because he was talking about it. And he said, yes, I do. It's the only damn thing that makes sense. And I thought about his remark for about 10 years and then realized what he had meant. Because um, finally, the, my, my notion of karma is that when you die, um, in most cases, you are reborn sooner or later. And, you, and your heaven or your hell consists of the way in which you're reborn. That, to me, makes much more sense than, there's an absolute, than that there is an absolute heaven and an absolute hell. In, in fact, once somebody said to me, well, what's your notion of karma? What do you think will happen to you? And I said, well, on certain days, what I think is I'll go up there before the monitoring angel, and I'll say, well, you know, in my next life, I'd like to be a... Uh, uh, I don't care if I'm born in a ghetto, but I want to be a good black athlete. And the monitoring angel looks up the papers and he says, well, we can't give you that. 
but we, we're going to make you a, in your next life, you're going to be a cockroach. <laughs> but you're going to be the fastest cockroach. <laughs> <on> the <laughs> so, at any rate, the, the, what I feel is this. Socialism has a fundamental notion, which is that, that injustice breeds horrors and that there must be a relative equality between people. It could be defined whether there should be absolute equality, which I don't believe in economically speaking, but there should be a, a certain relation between what the richest man and the poorest person in, the, in a given society is making, because if you don't have that, you, you, you start breeding various kinds of uh, awful horrors. But on the other hand, it's not going to work unless there's a deep sense that until we get to understand ourselves as humans more and more profoundly all the time, and, and begin to have a deeper knowledge of what the divinity might be. You know, for example, from my own point of view, I have a feeling that God is not an essential God, but an existential God. That, that God lives in much of the same torment that we live in because God doesn't know whether he or she is going to succeed or fail. And that there's a great triangle out there between God, the devil, and us. And between these three forces, uh, history takes place. But the fundamental aspect of it is that God needs us as much as we need God. So this whole business of prayer, oh God, give me this, give me that, is monstrous. That finally what we have to evolve to before we can begin to think of socialism is to arrive at that point where we're able to say in some honesty and simplicity, God, what do you want of me? Now, the organized religions have been doing that for uh, centuries, but they always do it in terms of absolute sacrifice to God. Whereas God might say uh, to a tennis player, uh, the tennis player might say, God, I'm praying to you, what do you want of me? And God might say, I want you to go out and win at Wimbledon tomorrow. Uh, I'm in Wales, so the remark is empty, correct? <laughs> well, they play tennis here too. At, at any rate, socialism is something we'll get when we deserve it. Until that time, it's just going to be power games and emptiness and technology and, and the abuse of human possibilities, and worse than that, the abuse of human ideals. I've, I've long felt that um, Norman Mailer was something that Wales would get when Wales deserved it. <laughs> and I'm beginning to think that uh, Wales has finally, finally deserved it. The existential God has been reigning. Uh, the Ark is awaiting those who'd like to go to the bookshop in a moment. Norman has agreed, despite this long and grueling session, to sign copies in the bookshop, but only one copy, please, per person. Um, it just remains to me to say thanks, everybody, for coming. Uh, thank the Hay and Y Literature Festival for bringing Norman Mailer amongst us, and mostly, Norman, for all of your incomparable work over the years. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you.